Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora koutou, welcome to episode 6. So this conversation came about off the back of the recently published Sustainable Development Goals report. The report looks at the global and regional progress towards the 17 goals with in-depth analysis of selected indicators for each goal. And it's a pretty depressing read. According to the report, cascading and interlinked crises are putting the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development in grave danger, along with humanity's very own survival. So we were interested to hear from people working for international NGOs, particularly those working in the Pacific and working to support children, to hear about how these cascading crises are impacting their work. How are they managing competing priorities and what are the impacts on intergenerational change? Paul Brown, the Council for International Development's Interim Director and ex-CEO of Child Fund, speaks with Ronish Prasad, who is a social policy specialist working for UNICEF based in Fiji, and Rachel Wah, Save the Children's New Zealand International Programs Director. We hope you enjoy it. Kiratato and Bola to our colleague who we'll hear from shortly, who's up in Fiji. Thanks to you all for tuning into this podcast. We've got a good panel here to uh, discuss some pretty thorny issues that face the sector. And I'd like to say hi to Rachel and also to Ranesh. As I prepared for this podcast, the team at Sid gave me some pre-reading, and I think what was even more helpful was they gave me a good video to watch. I'd actually all encourage you too, not now, but after this podcast, do go to YouTube and do just put into the uh, the search bar SDG Report 2022, and there's a really good, very informative video there. It's only about five five minutes and sixteen seconds long, to be exact. Well worth playing for your teams, well worth playing for your boards as well. And it's kind of sobering, which is the sort of preamble to our conversation today. It talks about the three C's, which we'll go into shortly. But the video describes this, you know, we're, we're, it's the year 2022, eight years out from 2030, which was supposed to be the deadline for these very aspirational sustainable development goals. But it talks also, which is kind of sobering, the fact that COVID has really erased a lot of the good work that your agencies and the communities that you work with have been striving towards for the last 10 plus years. We seem to have erased all that good work because of COVID, because of the health effects of COVID, because it's interrupted schooling, because it's really unfortunately put uh, gender back years. And then it talks also about not just COVID, but now we've got this increasing awareness and increasing effects of climate change. So we're seeing more and more natural disasters. Even here in New Zealand, you know, we've seen some unprecedented weather conditions of late. And the final C they talk about, these three Cs, are sort of unfortunate intersectional crises. The third C is this localised conflict in Ukraine, which is having global repercussions. We're now seeing food insecurity and famine hitting the most vulnerable people in the world, the people who can least afford to be exposed are now being threatened. So it's not a good world out there at the moment. And it could make you kind of pessimistic. So the pessimist to me says 2030, we're running out of time. We really haven't embraced these SDGs. They were aspirational anyway and ambitious. You know, are we ever going to get there? So that's the negative Nelly in me, the pessimist. But the optimist to me, and I am a born optimist, says, yeah, okay, well, that to me suggests we've got a lot of work ahead of us and what a privilege it is to be working in this space, knowing that we've got a lot of work in the next eight years to get to these SDGs. But it makes me think, you know, what are we going to do? So, Rachel, I'm going to put it to you. Where are you at with all this in terms of you probably looked at that video too. You're, you're living in this space. Are you a pessimist? Are you an optimist? What does the, f- the future look like for you, particularly with regards to these SDGs? Hmm. That's a really good question, Paul. I think it depends on uh, which day you catch me as to whether I'm a pessimist or an optimist and what report I've read that day, to be honest. But from a Save the Children perspective, we've been working in this space since 1919. There have been lots of crises happen, lots of really good work happening. Uh, But the thing that really struck me in the SDG report was this... um, that that said that more than four years of progress on poverty eradication has been lost and it's pushed 93 million more people into extreme poverty. That's that's quite a huge stat. And um, 
to work in that kind of space at this time with all of these different things that you spoke about is actually really quite a challenging thing to do at the moment. Where I currently sit is trying to take a longer term view. Uh, We definitely need to be flexible. We definitely need to be agile and we need to respond when needed. And thankfully, uh, organisations like Save the Children and um, many other organisations do have the capacity and the global reach to be able to respond quickly. My thought is that we really need to be able to maintain a focus on key areas um, but maintain flexibility to adjust as data change, as context change. But we really need to find a way to get ahead of the issues and to push anticipatory action. We've got 21 countries on our priority list at the moment. How do we do that? How do we get ahead of it? So I heard there, Rachel, and thanks for being so candid. You know, you're, you're human after all. It's, I think, to paraphrase, you said it, you know, pessimist optimist, it depends what day of the week it is or how much coffee you've had or what mood you're in. So I appreciate you being so honest. We're all human after all. But, you know, you then talk about we've got to remain agile yet flexible, a priority list of 21, which to me is a shopping list, not a priority list. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty tough times out there. And, um and we'll unpack a lot more of this as we go through the conversation today, but there's a lot, you know, how do you keep teams focused? How do you keep teams agile? How do you keep them um, agile yet disciplined and impactful? You know, it's, it really is a tough time out there at the moment. So, um, you know, credit to you for for keeping the drive and keeping the optimism and making sure it all comes together. I'll come back to you too about, you know, what agility means for SAVE and, and how you're applying that priority list and how you keep um, Refining that priority list, I guess, would be a, a, a verb to use. But Ranesh, up to you in Fiji. How, how are you seeing it? You know, just that opening question: Are you pessimistic? Are you optimistic? Where do these SDGs sit with you? Uh, you know, we've only got eight years left. From a person right at the uh, at the grassroots level, what, what are you seeing in Fiji, and how does this all affect you? Thank you, uh, Paul and Bolavinaka uh, from Fiji. So, uh, I mean, in my view, I mean, SDG. So SDG is a very broad term and uh, it, it can be considered as a buzzword if we do not put into perspective and what it means for every Fijian child or, or for a Pacific people, what does it relate to? So basically, for me, SDG is about people putting people at the center of it. Now, in terms of how do I see SDG in Fiji, in the Pacific? I mean, I guess the targets from UNICEF perspective are countries are making progress. We are supporting them towards realization of those goals. However, as you mentioned earlier, the triple C has come into play. And what we know from global perspective, uh, the, the UNICEF reports globally, 100 million more children have fallen below poverty line. And Pacific is of no exception. 50% of the population in 14 countries that we serve are children. So we are facing the full blunt of COVID, of the conflict in Ukraine, and the climate change for which we are not responsible. So the the goals are very ambitious. I am being optimistic. We should strive to work towards it, but definitely some of the things like climate change, it took thousands of years to to come to this stage. Therefore, to reverse the impact, it's a long-term vision. Thanks, Ranesh. I'm going to try, try and build on some of that. You're touching on the fact that UNICEF and Fiji, you're part of the UNICEF global system, but let's come back to those triple Cs just for one moment. Climate change, undoubtedly, you'd be seeing the effects there in Fiji. Um, but in terms of and COVID, we've, you know, we've, we've obviously seen COVID affect the Pacific as well, but the conflict in Ukraine and, and global conflict, how does that present itself in Fiji? Are you seeing any effects or experiencing any effects for your programming or is it just a news article that you read every now and then? Yeah, definitely the the crisis in Ukraine is having significant impact on on the lives of of 
the children here in Fiji and the Pacific and the people, and of course, how UNICEF works and support uh, um, government. For example, the food prices and the fuel prices are soaring in the Pacific. The inflation rates are expected to increase up to 6% in the Pacific uh, in, in, two, in 2022. And, and we know countries are trying to open up their borders, recover from the pandemic, but this positive growth rate is going to offset by the rising fuel and food prices. So, so that's a big challenge. And in, in, in the Pacific countries have small uh, um, resource base. Their physical space is very limited. During COVID pandemic, for example, hundreds and thousands of people lost job overnight income and livelihood. And during COVID lockdown, for instance, in Fiji, children in Fiji itself alone in 2021 lost 200 million in-class learning hours. Mm. And that will have a long-term impact on, 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 the, on the learning outcomes in Fiji. And similarly, if you link it to climate change, for example, we know all famous Cyclone Winston, category five, in 2016. It actually directly affected 120,000 children in Fiji. It wiped out one third of GDP within 36 hours in Fiji. It destroyed 240 schools. So these are the real impact of COVID, climate change, and the conflict. And, and, and some of these impacts are permanent. The, the, there is, like in Fiji, UNICEF estimated based on 2013-14 highs, although we have a new highs now, that 50% of the people may have fallen below poverty line if there were, not, if there were no mitigating measures implemented by the Fijian government. They rolled out half billion dollar social um, protection response package. So these are the kind of impact that we, the people in Fiji and the Pacific face from, from this, uh, uh, this crisis. And, and UNICEF is working hard. So we are taking system strengthening approach to build resilience of, of sustainable learning, learning continuity, resilient health system, shock responsive social protection system, and, 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 and resilient wash, water and sanitation. It's a big challenge, like what's happening in Tonga now. They're having drought water crisis, what happened in Tonga and in, 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 in Kiribati, uh, the, the, the drought. So, so these are some of the real challenges that, that the ch children in the Pacific face, and it's, it's going to have significant impact on health outcomes, on education outcomes, on food security, on nutrition, and so forth. And I think that's the key issue, Ranesh, the fact that you talk about those um, impacts or negative outcomes on children. I mean, there's, there's a big conversation we had to say, okay, how does this set up the next generation in terms of what will their resilience be like? Will it be stronger or, 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 or weaker? But you know, those outcomes you were just peeling off, the education, the health, the um, nutrition, I, I think that the most alarming thing about this is it, it is complex and it's all interlinked. So it's not just one outcome. These things are all layering on top of each other. So that's sort of something, and it's long-term too. So it's going to, these, these outcomes and the impacts are going to present themselves and manifest themselves for, for decades to come, um, which is kind of sobering. But Ranesh, I, Rachel, I will come back to you in a minute, but I just want to get a steer from Ranesh just briefly. UNICEF Pacific, how do, you, how do you fit in with the whole UNICEF machine in terms of we are talking about these global crises. How do you then interpret what's happening globally and then translate that to a more, a more regional approach, I guess? You're independent, you can create your own programming, or is there an overall UNICEF message saying, hey, let, let's work in these areas? How do you tailor it for the specific needs of where you're working? So basically, as, as you have said, this is a complex issue, multiple crises into interplay. These three crises that we're talking about will have intergenerational impact on children and the people of Pacific, no doubt. Now, how is UNICEF positioning in terms of responding to this? So we are doing a new country program now for next five years, 2023, 2027. And the core focus of the program is to work with government and our partners and our donors 
to build resilient families, communities, and the government system, the social services. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. So we are both trying to improve the policy environment in, in, in health sector, as well as build the capacity of health workers how do they respond to crisis? Because, because of climate change, the in intensity of the disaster and the frequency is just going to increase. And, 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 and we cannot do much about it. The, the you know, only option we have is to adapt, adaptation, and then resilience. And that's where the focus is on. So we are trying to tweak our programs to ensure that it's people-centered, it need-based, and, and we are responding to the actual challenge on ground. And that's our approach. And we'll continue to work with people because development work is about people, countries are about people, and we work for the younger citizen in, in these countries, about a million children in these 14 uh, Pacific Island countries and territories. Thanks, Rinesh. And, and, and Rachel, I guess with Save the Children too, being very child-focused, but. How do you navigate the Save the Children machine and contextualize or prioritize, you know, work in our region in the Pacific in terms of, or are you forced to fall into line and just obey what Save the Children says at a higher level? How, how does it work for Save? Well, all, all Save the Children officers subscribe to the same vision. Uh, so we have a global strategy in place. Uh, and and for, for Save the Children, the vision is a world in which every child attains the right to survival, protection, development and participation. Now, obviously, that uh, looks differently um, depending on which area of the world you're in. For Save the Children New Zealand, we have our own strategy um, that is mainly centred around the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Um, and so we are looking in the Pacific and across the Pacific, um, in the land of education, health, protection, uh, these kind of areas, similar to um, what Ranesh was saying, is, is building resilience, building these kind of um, systems and structures in place that, that bring long-term change. So we definitely have a long-term view of our work in the Pacific now, as a part of a bigger organisation, we also inter interact with the global sphere. Obviously, we respond in humanitarian situations, things like Afghanistan, um, Ukraine, obviously. Uh, we're looking at uh, what is being done with the hunger crisis as well. Um, so we, we sit in two camps in, in, in one way, um, but it's that systematic change, completely agreeing with, with what Ranesh said, that is, is our focus to bring this kind of long-term change. Um, I actually think that what is happening in the Pacific, especially in um, the realm of climate change, we can, we can really learn from. Uh, the Pacific has been dealing with these issues of climate for years and years uh, and has gone widely unnoticed uh, to an extent by the rest of the globe because we weren't as um, as affected as much. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of learnings that you can take out of the work that's been done in the Pacific that will have a global reach and a global impact um, because they're, we've been ahead of the game in that situation. And you talk about the Pacific, and it's interesting hearing Ranesh talk about, you know, droughts and Tonga and Kiribati, which are countries I don't really think of drought if I think of drought I'm always probably harking back to the images we I grew up with of you know dry lands in Africa and what I would call traditionally drought exposed states but I'd never really think the Pacific would be vulnerable to drought so that really really um, alarms me so on that note Rachel and I know you work to work within international programs and as the director of that for SAVE but how well do you think donors appreciate a, the complexity of all these multifaceted, multi-layered crises that are into, uh, coming together, but how well do they understand what's, you know, how that's being um, borne out in the Pacific? So don't, and when I say how, how well do you think donors understand, I'm going to use collective donors there, whether they be institutions, um, you know, right from big multilateral funders right down to Mr. and Mrs. Brown in this case, you know, as individuals. So how well is that being understood? 
I think the the donor space and the public space um, in particular, they're in a hard position. It has been two long years of COVID. We have been exhausted essentially and uh, we get hit by the media with crisis after crisis. If we're not looking at Ukraine, we're looking at uh, a hunger situation, we're looking at climate situations. And in all honesty, even for myself, that kind of contact can be exhausting um, to a degree. What I have noticed um, in the New Zealand space in particular, though, is that during COVID, people's engagement actually went up. People gave, people cared. And that was a, it's a bit of a beam of hope, really, in that the the public, New Zealanders, they, they care what's going on. Um, and as a result, I think it's the responsibility of people like Save the Children, like UNICEF, uh, like the sector in general, to keep um, telling the story. Um, because I think not only do people want to hear, uh, but I think we have an obligation to make sure that it keeps um, getting the the space that it, it requires. Ukraine, we raised over a million dollars and that's just one organisation. That is a sign that people in New Zealand care. From a government perspective, from other kind of um, institutional donors, I do think we get quite a lot of support although we do need to recognise our space within the global sphere, but for the Pacific in particular, a lot of the work that Save the Children does in the Pacific couldn't be done to the degree um, without the help of uh, institutional donors. And so I think that we are in a unique space in which we do get a lot of support. And for that, I'm very thankful. <laughs> um, thanks, thanks, Rachel. And Renesh, I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you think... Have you seen changes? Are donors understanding, you know, the, the challenges you face? Do you think we're getting um, more appreciative? How would you see it from, from your perspective? I mean, in my view and in UNICEF's perspective, uh, we believe donors have been responsive to the needs of the children and the Pacific Island countries. We did so this during pandemic. Uh, um, donors were very responsive, whether it being bilateral donor, uh, Australia, government of Australia, government of New Zealand, or whether government of Japan or United States or World Bank. Uh, they have been supporting the government and the actors on ground on those needs that people needed at that point in time. But the caveat here is based on this, the, the situation and the crisis that we're going through, looking at longer term, is that being addressed is something we still need to debate about. A good example is climate change. We talk a lot about building resilient communities, green investment, sustainable investment. How far we have gone, I think the reports clearly talks under climate finance. And, and I guess people should go and read about it. And, and when it comes to climate change, I think there is a lot needs to be done. We are moving away from COVID-19, but it also showed us a lot of opportunities where donors can fund to build, for example, the health system. Some of the system we believe is functioning, is resilient, is responsive. Unfortunately, it was not. We saw it during COVID-19. And then now it's an opportunity. Now we know the gap. So it's time for us partners like UNICEF, Save the Children, of course, working with the donors to fill in those gaps. And, and, and we do acknowledge donors are coming in. But I guess with the donor funding, and, and this is our theory, it's nothing new. Coordination has uh, is being a big challenge and it will continue to be a challenge in future. Thanks, Ranesh. Uh, Rachel, <clears throat> Ranesh has described there, you know, that the, there is this increasing shift towards uh, responding and addressing climate change and, and this climate change financing. How safe on that journey in terms of are you upskilling a team, changing your priorities? Where does it fit with you? And, and, and MFAT, you know, you, you'll be familiar 
Minister Shaw announced, I think, $1.2 billion worth of funding that will go through MFAT over the next three years towards climate change um, initiatives. So it's exciting, but we still don't know the details yet. But where's SAVAT on that journey? Is it, are you rapidly coming up to speed or how would you describe it? Yeah, um, we've had programming in the Pacific in the um, areas of DRR and climate change, uh, resilience in livelihoods for a few years now, um, and that continues to build. Um, I think when it comes to things like the Climate Fund, that's a really positive step from the New Zealand government, and and we were really happy to um, hear that news. Um, SAVE is in a interesting position um, in that Save the Children Australia is actually an administrator of the Green Climate Fund, so the Global Fund for Climate Change, and we will see uh, action through the Pacific in that realm. So globally, it's definitely a priority area, uh, definitely an area of focus, um, because we see that this is going to have a huge impact if it is not addressed. Um, So I think we're all in a situation where we're still learning and adapting um, because the climate change space, we hear a lot of scary stats uh, and we do need to be adapting our approaches as the climate does alter. We have more disasters, we have more cyclones, especially in the Pacific. Um, So I think it is a learning game for all of us, to be honest. Uh, but there is a, a deep commitment to keep working with the Pacific um, and more more globally um, within Save the Children. Yeah, thanks for that, Rachel. And we began the conversation today about these intersecting crises and these three Cs. And I asked, you know, are you a pessimist or an optimist? But running your team or, and also working across your colleagues at Save, I'm just conscious of who's tuning into these podcasts. We've got a lot of people who work with them in programming teams and we've got students who listen in, but we've got people from right across the sector. But what do you think are the skills you need to survive in, in, I guess, an international development, given it's such a complex space? How are you adjusting? What skills are you um, growing your team around? And, and, And what do you think someone needs to really survive or thrive in this space? That is an excellent question. I have somehow managed to survive it for, <laughs> for as many years as I have. Um, look, I think uh, when it comes down to it, there is a level of passion that drives the sector. I don't think you will meet many people in the international development space or the humanitarian space that don't have a deep commitment to what they're doing and uh, thinking about things like the SDGs, looking at those goals and going, yes, that's something that we uh, need to reach for. Um, I do think there is a degree of resilience that sits with uh, staff members (laughs) and people in this sector to be able to absorb uh, blows, to be able to absorb bad news, to be able to absorb things like this SDG report, to be honest, and still keep pushing. Um, And I think that's a drive Um, that people will innately have. Um, How you grow that in your teams is is difficult if you don't have the right people, but if you have the right people, keeping your eye on the vision, uh, focusing on the things that we can do versus the things that we can't do, really important. And I do think there is a lot of work that is being done by the whole sector that is actually really positive. Yes, this is not a great report, but there's a lot of work that um, is done that impacts people's lives, uh, impacts the lives of children, allows them to go to school, allows them to have, you know, a good meal and and good nutrition. These things are happening. Um, Yes, there are there are setbacks, but these things are happening. And I think if we keep focusing on those things, and I think the SDGs to an extent are a really good driver um, to show us that kind of roadmap, um, then we keep we keep going. We turn up to work the next day because we know that it is is for a good reason. Yeah. Well, congratulations on having that stamina. And, and I, I agree with you in terms of if we keep our eye on the prize, the SDGs, or keep you know an eye on the outcomes. That, that's what has to really 
keep us engaged and motivated and focused. And um, I think that's that's that that is the secret to it. But yeah, that report it is somewhat sobering if you do look at that YouTube clip or or read the report. Ranesh, what do you think in terms of what are the skill sets you you need to really survive and thrive in this space? But I'm really keen to find out how you see those skill sets. Have they changed over the last three five years? with these crises, with COVID, with increasing conflict, with increasing climate change, do we need a different breed of people coming into the sector or can the existing breed change or what skills do those folks need? In terms of trying to have staff with the relevant skill set that actually responds to the changing environment and context is a challenge. And, 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 and UNICEF frequently reviews and engages with government and development partners as we develop new programs and strategies. What are different HR and skill set needs to deliver <clears throat> on this program? So we keep reviewing ourselves and we ensure that our staff have sufficient right skills to deliver on those outcomes. And, 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 and we don't only build the capacity of our own staff because we work with government and partners. So we also transfer this knowledge and skills to them because ultimately it's the government and the, and, the, and the local communities who continue to serve their own people. So to, to, to make sure that these programs are sustainable and, and that's another challenge in donor programming about unsustainable programs because some programs are pilot, one-off, we do, we do good job, we show results, but we don't scale it up. But in the Pacific, we have, we have problems because the scale is quite small. These are small island developing states, but big ocean states. That's the reality. And we are very proud about it. So, so, so this is the challenge. So while we do our best in, de- in delivering for every child in the Pacific, we make sure no one is left behind. But at the same time, we are mindful of, of these challenges. And we continue to review, evaluate and ensure we, 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 we remain um, relevant to our government partners and to our donors. So that's how UNICEF operates. We, we have regular meetings with partners and governments to review these things and, and we respond to their needs. For example, when, when disasters strike, climate-induced disasters, UNICEF is the first one to respond on the ground whether it's to do education, whether it's to do health, whether it's to wash kids, dignity kids, so forth. So, so and, and we'll continue to do that because the, the, the climate-induced disasters are just going to get worse in the Pacific. More children will be displaced. More people will lose their jobs and livelihood. People's food security is, is, is threatened. We already have a triple burden of disease. And, 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 and the communicable disease is coming back. Measles are on rise. We had COVID. So, so there's new challenges coming on now. And then we, we at UNICEF, we are, we are trying to position ourselves with our partners to respond to these new challenges. Thanks, Ranesh. And um, I heard you say there too, it you know, really fits in tightly with what Rachel was saying too in terms of, and I think this is the challenge for any agency working in international development or any agency working in social change for that matter is, you know, you've got to keep asking, uh, how are we remaining relevant? How are we remaining sustainable? And therefore, how are we remaining impactful? And I think if you can keep addressing those three questions, it's almost a virtuous cycle with those three elements, sustainability, relevance, and impact, they all feed into each other. But if you can keep that sort of top of mind, I think that's what's really going to make sure that all of us working in social change can, you know, Keep honest and keep keep delivering to our missions and to our north stars. So that that therein lies the challenge. Rachel, did you have any questions for Anesh or vice versa in terms of you're both in this space, but at different ends of the continuum almost. But I'd be keen to hear what you both have to you know what challenges have you got for each other from different agencies or from different perspectives. Yeah, sure. I, and there was actually just something that um, Ranesh said that that pinged a, a thought. From a from one of the previous uh, questions, you were you were saying that because the Pacific is smaller, um, there is clearly a lot of work being done there and, and a great amount of uh, impact being done there. But that really reminded me uh, of what we were saying about these three C's, these 
three big crises that are happening. Um, and we were talking about uh, priorities and we were talking about whether the public actually is engaging in the Pacific. Um, I would probably say that the Pacific engages in the Pacific um, and, and we were talking about the support that happens there. But from a global scale, it is difficult to get the Pacific on the global agenda, um, especially in this current context. So I'm really keen to hear uh, your thoughts on how we actually do keep the Pacific or get the Pacific on the global agenda moving forward um, and how we manage to prioritise these. And we don't want to compete with these other crises, but how we manage to actually make sure the right attention is going the right places. Thanks, 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 Rachel. That's a great, great question. Actually, how do we bring Pacific on global map, or how how does the global community respond to the needs of the Pacific, small Pacific island states uh, specifically? So, I guess Pacific one, they need to work as a team, and 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 go as a one voice to to this global platform. And I think we have seen some progress in that area on climate finance, for example. The UK government has is, is, is working with Fiji and I think some governments in Caribbean where there's a specific climate finance project for SIDS. So, so programs and initiatives that is targeting directly to seeds, and in this case, specific seeds, will be very critical in terms of responding and mitigating the development challenges that our people face in the Pacific. For example, United Nations and, and UNICEF was part of it. So most of these countries are actually high income. And if you go by the OECD principle on ODA, if you're high income, you are not even a member of the World Bank. And we have some countries in the Pacific Islands, Niue, Palau, they're not part of, of World Bank and they cannot benefit even from those COVID response fund, the head of climate, and now they have the, the food um, crisis fund of uh, $15 billion or, or so. They cannot fund uh, benefit from those. And so what has happened, the United Nations, working with partners have developed an index called MVI, Multi-Dimensional Vulnerability Index. And that index is measuring the, the vulnerabilities related to environment and development. So, and, and in the Pacific, most of the um, countries are, are ranked top, like Vanuatu, Tonga, Solomon Islands, they're highly vulnerable to these environmental challenges, which has cascading impact on economic. And then, then that cascading impact translates into social impact. So social impact is actually where we work in, is not actually right now reflected. And that's where we should, as partners in government, tell the world that yes, while you equally invest in infrastructure and the economic development, you need equal investment in social development. You cannot leave the sector behind because we saw most of the climate related projects were infrastructure driven. But at the end of the day, countries is about people. We can have fancy buildings, bridges, roads, but if you don't have healthy, productive labor force people, what are these for? So, so and, and I, I think that's the voice we need to take to global platform and lobby lobby for developed countries to reduce climate emissions and, and, and at the same time for the wrongdoings that they have done in the past, which is affecting us today, uh, we are paying the prices uh, for, for climate change or rising food and fuel prices, compensate, compensate for those actions. And that can come in the, in the development finance for social developments, social sector, economic development, and of course, Building the bridges and roads and so forth, which we need, and 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 I guess we as the partners that we work in the Pacific should 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 promote and and invest more 
in innovation and and smart climate smart investment i think that that's what we need in the pacific right now because ultimately if you think longer term countries like kiribati tuvalu Kiri, uh, i mean climate change is just going to get worse and if you're talking about investing a lot of money in building economics and so forth what kind of job opportunities will people it's 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 something to think about and i think australia and new zealand have responded positively around like pacific labor scheme so we invest in human capital but we expo we export our healthy labor force and then we get rem in remittance back home for example tonga 31/3 of the gdp is from remittance so so and and that's how the future will look like in the pacific and that's why we continue to press with donors with world bank with 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 with, with big climate finance institutions please when you give money we tell the government ensure there is a component on human capital on 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 social development because that's what matters the most right now yeah here here uh, ranesh this is the unfortunately the limitations of podcasts you can't see ranesh <laughs> fist pumping and uh, banging his fist on the table and rachel and me nodding our heads in full agreement um your passion and your desire and 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 your expertise is, is is immense so thank you for that and we i think we we totally agree with what you're saying i think that's the challenge i'm fascinated by that multi-dimensional index approach it seems far more holistic and i was always puzzled the way we oversimplified the world with a simple simple you know economic measure that the poverty line used to be a one dollar US today thankfully it lifted to two dollars but if your family earned two dollars and one cent you were suddenly classed as no longer being you know impoverished or or poor it just seems such a blunt metric so I'm really excited by um this gravitational this move towards multi-dimensional indices that's that sounds quite exciting but you're right you know in terms of the complexities of the Pacific these Tiny states scattered over such a wide ocean, and um, and again, I recall talking to uh, ministers in Kiribati who, you know, they just couldn't accept this paradox: the fact that they were always saying Kiribati as a nation is the country that's least contributed to the you know, the contributing factors towards climate change, but as a country, we're the most affected by the impacts of climate change. It just doesn't seem fair so i think you know i think we've all got a, a role to play in championing uh, the needs of the pacific and the capabilities of the pacific too so it's um you know these crises they are compounding but they're not insurmountable and I, you know i've got every optimism that 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 through agencies like your own and through working with communities working with governments working with the private sector you know we will be able to, to crush these these thorny issues um Ranesh, back to you though in terms of any questions you've got for rachel um, you know in terms of Anything you want to challenge Rachel on in terms of as a as a program director, sort of working with partners like yourself, what would you be saying to her? So, I mean, UNICEF and uh, Save the Children um, at global level and and at regional level, we we have been working together and complementing and coordinating to 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 support the same child. So. My question to Rachel is how save the children with with recent climate finance being received in Vanuatu congratulations for that congratulations for that uh, how i mean that's the project's basic livelihood uh in 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 Vanuatu 32 million if i'm not wrong so uh, so how you save the children is going to expand similar programs on because unicef currently is is not able to receive climate finance we are not a registered institution to to receive climate finance from these big uh, yeah, climate finance institutions but save the children is how you going to expand that because that's where the lifeline of development finance is and how you going to work with unicef in the pacific uh on on those projects so i so i really look forward to hear because i'm very passionate about climate change and 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 and, and climate finance and when i saw that project i guess i was more happy than you i was very excited about it so Uh, that's quite funny that you are more excited than us but I can I can feel your passion and I really I appreciate that um 
yes, we we do have a a quite a significant project that is going into Vanuatu uh, through the Save the Children Australia office um, and the Green Climate Fund. That's for those listeners who who aren't familiar. That's what we're referring to there. And look, I think the important thing with that fund is that it is. Um, it is based on governments. It is based on, uh, it goes from a higher level and goes down. So it's looking at things like structural change, systematic change within the realm of climate, and then it goes into um, local settings. Um, but these projects are being driven by uh, local actors, uh, not by Save the Children. Um, although we are partners, obviously, and and uh, a, a part of the process in developing these projects, uh, they are they are innately uh, locally led. Uh, so, if there are other actors in any given country, as such as UNICEF and other places, there is always room for collaboration. And I'm a big fan of making sure that um, whatever goes into the Pacific, that it is done in a way that considers everybody working in the Pacific and areas that are. Um, interlinked or we have the same values and, and shared uh, vision that that gets uh, taken in, into account. Um, I'm aware of a few things that we do in the Pacific together where we do work quite collaboratively and quite well together and I think that is I think that is the way that we're actually going to address the issues of climate in the Pacific. I don't think we can do it alone. I don't think it matters uh, too much who is holding the administrative um, responsibility, um, but it matters that we have the same uh, values and same vision going forward. Um, so I think that's how the way forward is. Thanks, Rachel. Um, and, and again, listeners won't be able to see this, but in the chat box, Ranesh has very, very cleverly just sent a big proposal to Rachel saying, please fund me. So well done, Ranesh. That was good. Um, it's been a very productive hour for you. Um, Rachel, just keep on that, and this will probably be the last couple of questions or so. You talk about collaboration, and you know, as a sector, we do work well alongside each other, particularly at a program level. But scale of 1 to 10, 10 being we are brilliant, 1 being we've got a long way to go, how well do you think we collaborate as a sector? And I'll almost anticipate the answer. What would make that a 10 out of 10? What do we need to do to be more collaborative? Mm, that's a good question. Uh... Look, I do think as a New Zealand sector in particular, we work quite well together. Um, and I think um, I understand that it's uh, this podcast is actually uh, a SID podcast, but I actually think that SID plays a really big role in making sure that we do uh, collaborate well together and are aware. We're probably about a six or a seven out of 10, to be honest, but I think there is a... Uh, reality that sits behind all of us and that's called funding and that often leads to if we're in a competitive market that's always going to impact how we interact with each other. Um, I do think we do a good job of uh, rising above that reality the majority of times but that reality will always exist. Thanks for that so yeah thanks for promoting Sid you get a uh, crunchy bar or a lollipop from us, they say thanks very much. But Ranesh, back to you in terms of one to ten, how do you see the sector collaborating? And again, anticipating your answer isn't ten. What would make it a perfect score? Thanks, thanks, Paul. And and I agree with Rachel. Um, I will agree with the rating that's proposed by Rachel as well. And I think that's an area needs more discussion and more dialogue. And we in the Pacific should continue to, to have this dialogue at regional and at country level because all countries are very unique in, 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 in their um, situation and, and how things are managed and in, actually uh, done at country level and community level. And um, countries in the Pacific have very strong culture and, and tradition and they're very unique. So, so I think that's something we have to be mindful about. Yeah, of course, UNICEF is also a donor-driven agency. We rely on our donors to deliver for these vulnerable children in the Pacific. And I guess the one thing that, that will enhance 
this this uh, collaboration and coordination and of course the cohesive approach to inclusive social uh, social development would be having the common vision because ultimately we work for the same child and and same same country and same people so i guess having this common vision and working towards it and and uh, having good an effective partnership at regional and country level, having political buy-in, and of course, uh, having people participate as part of this development process is significant. And, and I guess these few things will change the way we operate, change the way we deliver, and perhaps will make high impact on, on these lives of these uh, children in the Pacific, and of course, the communities and people. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that, Ranesh. Totally agree. Um, hey, look, I'm conscious of time and the fact that, you know, we mentioned these cascading crises and how they're intersecting and there's a lot more work to be done. So I think we need to get back to doing that work. So um, I'll wrap it up by saying a big vanaka to you, um, Ranesh, and a big thank you to Rachel. I think we've covered a lot of really healthy, interesting ground in terms of talking about these three Cs, these crises and how they're intersecting and how that how that's playing out, particularly in the Pacific. I think it's been great to hear um, you know, from you, Rachel, in terms of perspectives from, I guess, from the design, the program end, and then also just hearing how that plays out or how that manifests from, you know, Ranesh, we've heard your, dare I say, your really raw and passionate pleas about, you know, what it means to people in the Pacific. And I, I just want to say thank you both for being so candid and so honest. Um, thanks, too, to the audience for tuning in. It's been a... I've found it really, really enlightening and, and I've learned a great deal. So thank you all for spending the last few moments of your precious time tuning in to Ranesh and Rachel. Um, Rachel, any parting words, any words of wisdom you'll leave with the audience? Parting words of wisdom. <laughs> um, I would say don't read the SDG report and give up hope. There is there is still hope to be had. That would be my that would be my You're big drifting takeaway. Back to your, your I'm back to the optimism. <laughs> <laughs> Come back to the honours. We're supposed to leave it a high. Ranesh, take us back out with a high. What, what were your parting words of wisdom? Be, be hopeful. The <laughs> SDG report is timely. This is not the end of it. And UNICEF will continue to work for all children in the Pacific. So that's what I will leave it with. Thank you. Fantastic, Vanaka. Hey, thank you both. And thank you all for listening <clears throat> to. Yeah, be hopeful. Um, Keep drinking coffee and uh, skip to work. We're doing some amazing work. I think we applaud everyone who's listening into this, uh, this podcast. It really is a privilege to work in this sector. It's a fascinating time to be working in this space. So go well, uh, Tanakwe, and have a good, good day for the rest of your day. Thanks, you both. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.